Would you join me this morning and let's just pray together as we continue to worship and uh, just are thankful to God for all that he's doing in our midst and in our world. Father, as we sang the words, grace like rain falls down on me, Lord, I just was mindful of how this week when it rained, how inconvenient I thought it was. And I think that's true for a lot of us. There are many times when your grace is pouring down on us and we may not understand uh, what is really happening in our lives. And we may even complain about the very thing you're doing to provide life for us. So this morning as we come into this place to worship, as we sing these songs, as we uh, just enjoy the fellowship of your church together, Lord, I pray that your grace would really rain down on us even now as we just open your word and see what it says. Father, may your grace and your truth uh, be made known to us so that we can be people who are filled with grace and truth. And Father, that we would then be the rain, the graceful rain that you're pouring on to our community and around the world. Father, thank you for those who've come today. Father, whatever their circumstances of their life, I believe you've got a purpose and a plan for all of us to be here right now in this moment. So we pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would just be open to you and that you would be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, well, I want to uh, talk this morning a little bit about politics. Uh-oh. All right, so I love, love, love politics. I, I, and it's not so much about the... It's not so much about the, the winning and losing of it. I love politics. I love to watch political stuff. I love to read history. My family tells me all that. They don't know what else to get me for a birthday or Christmas. They get me a book about a dead president. I, I, love, I love to read that stuff. Part of the reason I love it isn't so much about the politics, you know, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative. I think it's a great study of human nature. And given my responsibility each and every week to talk to you, I, I need to know... The, the Bible, but you also expect me to have some knowledge of human nature as well and how those two things connect. And one of the things that I recognize when I watch the news and when I read about politics is just the increasing polarization. You, you know what I'm talking about? That everybody seems to be pushing further and further away from each other. Whatever their beliefs are, they kind of leapfrog over one another to prove that, no, I believe that more than you believe that. And I'm more conservative than you're conservative. Oh yeah, well, you're that conservative. Well, then I'm this conservative. And, and same thing on the opposite end. So I'm progressive and I'm liberal. Oh yeah, well, you're that progressive and liberal. I'm going to go a step further and show you how much more progressive and meanwhile, everybody's sort of pulling apart in the middle. You know, there's no, there's no place. It seems like sometimes you'll watch the news and you'll hear about something that sounds completely reasonable. And you think, why can't those people get it together? And it's because they are constantly polarizing, pulling further and further and further apart from one another. And this happens all the time. And it's not true just of our generation. It's always been true. It's been true throughout human history, and it goes all the way back. One of the, and it's not just true in politics. It's true in religion and true in church world as well. Let me give you an example of this. So in, in churches in America today, primarily, you've got lots of different denominations, but there are two basic categories when it comes to Christian churches. You have churches who would be sort of considered conservative churches. Uh, you have churches that are kind of considered liberal churches. Now, conservative churches are, are primarily known as evangelical churches. They are focused on the individual transformation 
uh, of people. They, they, they focus on what does the Bible mean and what does the gospel mean to you as an individual that Jesus came to die for you. That, you know, if he, you'd heard it said, if he hadn't come and if, if he hadn't died for anybody else, he still would have come and he died for you. It's all about the individual personal transformation. The other side of the churches, those are evangelical churches, the other side, the, the more progressive or, or liberal churches, are sometimes known as social justice churches. And these are churches that primarily teach this idea that Jesus' death, the work of God through Jesus Christ, was about the transformation of the world. It's a much bigger idea. So they're, they're, issued in, they're concerned about things of social justice, uh, freedom, and, and they want to know that, that the needs of the oppressed are being met. And so two iconic figures from the 20th century that kind of represent that for us is the Reverend Martin Luther King, and the Reverend Billy Graham. And you can see this in both of their ministries. Everybody knows Martin Luther King was a champion for civil rights. I mean, he looked at the world, he looked at our country, and he said, it is not right that people are discriminated against based upon the color of their skin. And using the Bible and using the words of Jesus, the Reverend Martin Luther King challenged all of society and said, we must do better than this. And eventually people said, you're right. But there were churches that were leading the cause that way. On the other hand, you have the Reverend Billy Graham, who is famous around the world for revivals and these huge meetings and these huge stadiums, hundreds of thousands of people coming, and he talks about the gospel message and the power of the gospel to transform the individual life. And he extends an invitation and hundreds of people flood forward to say, yes, I believe I need the, transformation, the transforming power of Jesus in my life. What's interesting about these two individuals is that they both greatly valued the opposite idea as well. The Reverend Martin Luther King understood that the only way these big social changes were going to come about was when individuals began to look and inspect their own heart and see transformation inside of them. That societal, societal discrimination would never end until personal prejudice was dealt with. He understood that. The same with the Reverend Billy Graham. Uh, still to this day, Billy Graham is very concerned about global and social justice issues. He understands that it begins with personal transformation, but it doesn't stop there. It extends past that into transforming entire societies and communities and the world. So, so these two individuals represent what sometimes has, we've pitted against each other. That you've got churches that are very much interested in social justice, and we'd say, oh, they're, you know, they're very, they might be sort of accommodating or even... Uh, they might even be overly tolerant of some of the sin and some of the negative things that go on in the world, but they're trying to make a difference. They're trying to feed hungry children, and they're trying to free oppressed people. And then the evangelical churches where, you know, they're very concerned about personal holiness and righteousness and purity and the truth of God's word, but they sort of seem to forget that Jesus came and said, you know, if, if, I'm, if people are hungry, as you do to them, you do to me. I mean, so we see this tension play down in churches. And here's what's interesting it goes all the way back to the Bible itself, this tension that exists. If you look in the Bible, you can constantly find this idea, this balance that exists between the law that God came to give and said, okay, here are some standards by which I want you to live. And we called them the Ten Commandments, but there was more than that. I mean, the Moses and the Israelites, and he said, here are standards by which you should live, and if you can live this way, you will be free 
in order to enjoy me as you were designed to enjoy me. Our relationship will be free. Your relationship with each other would be free. Here's the law. And then there was this idea that when you break the law, there are consequences. And so sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we say, well, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible about law and justice and righteousness. And there's sort of this idea, this image of God the Father who's this judge and maybe even a little vindictive and he's going to get even with people. And then we come and we like the New Testament. Because the New Testament's about grace and the New Testament's about love and can't along and and so you get this and you know jesus is sort of the the angry father who you never i mean god's sort of the angry father you never know what he's going to be like when he gets home from work but jesus is the graceful parent and he always tells me yes and he always makes it okay and we even pit the old and the new testament against each other the truth is there is as much grace and love in the old testament as there is in the new testament and there's as much a call for holiness and righteousness in the new testament as there is in the Old Testament. And there is a gospel that we've been looking at, the Gospel of John. It's in your Bible. It's the uh, fourth book of the New Testament. And John, who is writing this gospel, understands that this tension has always existed, this tension between, between grace and justice, between mercy and, and uh, righteousness. He, he catches this from the very beginning, and he begins to address it from the very beginning of his gospel. And we see at the start, Jesus coming into, the, coming into the world. He always seems to be very comfortable with the tension between this righteousness and grace. He seems to be very comfortable between justice and mercy. And this is what John says in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us. Now, what's interesting about this is that when you look at this passage of scripture, if you were to start reading it from the beginning, it says at John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Now, you don't have to be in church long, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know this. In the beginning, does that sound familiar? What does it sound like? Genesis, right. If you open up to the very beginning of your Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is clearly saying, hey, this is big, what I'm talking about. This, this has elements of creation, elements of the very start of things. But then he goes on in verse 14, and the word, this eternal God, this word that spoke things into creation became flesh. We know him as Jesus. He came to live among us. And then he says this, and dwelt among us. Now, what's interesting is that literally that means he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. That God came and pitched his tent with us. Now, there's another image that John is pointing us toward, and it's the book of Exodus. He's already sort of pointed you back to Genesis. Now, with this line, he's pointing you to Exodus. Because there was this time in the history of the nation of Israel when they had been oppressed by the Egyptians. They were slaves. And God, through Moses, had set them free. And they were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And God came to Moses and said, I am going to come and I'm going to dwell with you. And I want you to build a tent. And they called it the tabernacle. And so the Israelites built this elaborate tent. And it was the centerpiece of their, uh, of, of their, of their community. It's where they met, came to meet and worship God. And they believed God dwelt there. God has pitched his tent among us. And it was from this place that God would give the law and God would speak to his people. God would speak through Moses. So it represented God's presence 
with his people. And John is saying, listen, the word from the beginning that created everything has become flesh. God has literally come among us and pitched his tent with us. This is God here with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That's key. That is so important. Because John could have used anything to describe Jesus. John could have said lots of things about Jesus. But he said, at the very beginning, I want you to know something about him. He is full of grace and truth. Verse 15. For from his fullness... Now, what is his fullness? Grace and truth. That's going to be a good answer all day when I ask you something, okay? (laughs) Just so you get an idea. So what's his fullness? Grace and truth. So from his fullness of grace and truth... We have all received, okay? Here's, now, this is what we get out of his fullness. The idea being that he's so full of this that it's flowing out of him. Have you ever overfilled a cup and, and the, it starts you know, pouring out of the top of it? This, what, this is the image John's giving you. He is full of grace and truth, and it's overflowing. And here's what we get out of it, that we have all received grace upon grace. <laughs> that because Jesus is full of grace and truth, We are given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace because he's full of both. Not half of each, but full of both. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known to us. John is given this idea that, listen, God's grace has always been his plan. That when God came in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel, and he said, look, I'm coming to live among you and I'm giving you the law, that was grace. He said, I'm not abandoning you. I know that you've messed up. I know that humanity is far away from me, but I'm giving you myself. I'm coming to you. I'm speaking you these words of life. The law is life and freedom and it's grace. But, but then John says, but it's better than that. Because God's grace is always expansive. And so what we see now is that God is no longer content to deal with us from a distance and just give us his law like a telegram or an email that's sent to us. He says, Jesus himself is God in flesh, come to live among you, and he is giving you grace and truth. He's giving you himself, that God's grace is always expanding. Many times in our life, we don't recognize God's grace when it takes a sharp edge in our life. What I mean by that is there are times where we suffer the consequences of choices that we make. And because of the suffering, because of the consequences that we've suffered, God is demonstrating grace to us in order to prevent us from greater consequences. Ever had a case like that? where maybe you didn't make the best choice and there was a repercussion from that choice, but when you look back now after time, you are so grateful. You are so grateful that you didn't get away with it because had you gotten away with it, it would have led to worse consequences for you and for other people around you. And you can look back now and recognize that was grace in my life 
Maybe it's, maybe it's as you look back at the way uh, a parent dealt with you. And maybe at the time when you were a teenager, you thought, oh, they're so strict and they're so oppressive and I can't wait to be out of the house. But you look back years later and you think, I'm, that was grace. That wasn't law. That was grace. And what John is saying, grace upon grace has been given to you through Jesus Christ. It's expanding So when Jesus arrived on the scene, he was not the resolution of the tension between grace and truth. He was not the grace to the Old Testament's truth. He was the fullness of God's truth and grace manifest in flesh, perfectly balanced. And we're not used to people being, we're used to people being one or the other, aren't we? You know, there are people who are grace people and there are people who are truth people. And then sometimes there are people who you don't ever know who you're going to get. They vacillate. Today, they're going to be a grace person. Tomorrow, they're going to be a truth person. The the best example of this is parenting. You know where I'm going. If you were fortunate enough to be raised in in a home with two parents, you know there was a grace parent and a truth parent. Bill Cosby says the reason God designed you to have two parents is because one of them always wants to kill you. And the other's always trying to stop them. There's, always, there's a grace parent and a truth parent. Now, I was raised in a single-parent home, and my mom was sometimes grace and sometimes truth. And, and, and you know, here's what you did as a kid when you, you knew this. So if you wanted to do something, that you wanted to go somewhere, you wanted to spend the night somewhere, you always went and asked which parent? The grace parent, right. Ask the grace parent because the grace parent will say yes. That's what grace parents do. Grace parents say yes. But, but... If you needed justice, if you need, like if your siblings had done something and you wanted a little justice brought to the circumstance, or you had a problem at school and you needed an advocate, which parent did you go to? You went to the truth parent. Because the truth parent's going to, that truth parent is going to execute justice. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now here's what I want Jesus to be. Okay, because I really, I really, I really like it if Jesus is one or the other. So when I'm thinking about my personal relationship, what's going on in my life, I want Jesus to be full of grace. I really don't want a lot of truth. I just want a lot of grace. But when I think about Jesus in your life, I want him to be full of truth. That's <laughs> just, it's just human nature. This is what, but the problem is Jesus is full of both. And and let me just share some examples with you, because when you read the stories in the Bible, you find over and over again, Jesus makes everybody mad at him. That's why they killed him. Because he, not because he was, because he was only preaching truth. If he had just been truth with no grace, he'd have gotten along with the Pharisees just fine. If he had just been about grace with no truth, the Romans wouldn't have wanted to kill him. He wouldn't have been a threat to them. But Jesus was full of grace and truth. So Jesus, on one occasion, is, uh, is walking by a well, and there's a woman that comes out to the well all by herself. And immediately, we know something's wrong, because women didn't go to wells by themselves. They did it in community to come out and draw the water. But, so this woman was obviously some sort of social pariah. They had sort of rejected her. Whatever was going on, Jesus clued in on this. And, and Jesus didn't mince any words. He said, I'll tell you the truth about your situation. Uh, you've been married four times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You're like, oh, I would, Jesus, I want to said that. I mean, I, I wouldn't lead with that. 
And, and here's, here's what's truthful about the situation. This woman didn't divorce four men. Women didn't have the right to divorce anybody in this day and age. Four men had left her. She'd been rejected by four husbands, and the man she was living with now didn't think enough of her to marry her. And Jesus cuts right to it. This is the truth of the situation. But now, let me tell you, that thing that you're looking for, that you keep looking for in the next relationship, in the next right man that will come along, he's never going to provide it for you, but I've got it. I can give you living water, and your soul will never be thirsty again. I've got that for you. There's grace. You know what happens? This conversation happens. She goes back to her village, and she becomes one of the very first evangelists. She goes back into town and she says, I want you to know there's a man out there by the well. He's told me everything I ever did. Y'all already know what it is anyway. You talk about it all the time. But he knew and he doesn't know my story. And he gave me grace and truth. And it made all the difference in this woman's story and in her life. So on another occasion, Jesus is walking around. He's gathering his followers, his disciples. And so they're walking you know, John and Andrew and Peter and James are with him by this point. He's walking by and he goes by a tax collector. There's a man there whose name is Matthew. And Matthew was a traitor. He was a Jew who started working for the Romans, collecting taxes. He was hated by everybody. The Romans didn't like him because he was Jewish. The Jews didn't like him because he's working for the Romans. And he's, he's, he's taken money that's not his. He's, most tax collectors at that, that age took more than they needed in order to pay themselves because the Romans didn't pay them. They were just allowed to take whatever they could get. So he was a criminal. He was a crook. He was a traitor. Jesus walks by and says, Matthew, hey, you, come follow me. And Peter's like, whoa, Jesus, wait just a minute. You need to get his resume and vet him first because you don't really understand what's going on here. You don't understand what he's doing. Yeah, Peter, I know what he's doing. I can see he's a tax collector. Come follow me, Matthew. And James is like, wait, Jesus, hold on just a second here. What are we saying? What political statement are we making if suddenly we have tax collectors in our group? Are we saying that suddenly now we're okay with Roman taxation? Because we're sending a message here by having him come with us. I I know we're sending a, a message, James. It's okay, Matthew, I want you to come follow me. Grace. And truth. See, Matthew had to leave what it was he was doing in order to receive the grace that Jesus was offering. But had it been left up to other people, the truth of the situation is Matthew's a tax collector. He's not deserving of grace. The reality is nobody's deserving of grace. That's why it's grace. That's the truth. On another occasion, Jesus is... uh, is, is, uh, standing around with his disciples he's been teaching and some religious people come out and they bring a woman who's been caught in adultery and they throw her down in front of jesus she's naked she was caught in the act and all the pharisees the religious people are standing around saying jesus what are are you going to do about this because the truth is the law says she should be stoned now never mind that the law also says both parties should be stoned they just sort of selectively applied the truth which isn't that what we sometimes do like we, we, like even when we say we're going to be people of truth we apply the truth only where it's convenient for us to apply the truth so so the law says stone her so jesus what are you going to say about that we got him now that's what they, we got him now because he's going to have to choose he's going to have to either be full of grace or full of truth but he can't be full of both in this situation And Jesus says, yep, yep, she's a sinner, and so are all of you. So the one of you who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he just sits down and starts doodling in the ground, in the sand. 
And one by one, they all walk away. And so you ask yourself, okay, Jesus, is this woman a sinner who deserves condemnation? Or is she forgiven? Is, she, is it okay for her to go on? And Jesus says, yeah, both are true. Both are true. She is, he says to her, go and sin no more. He didn't cover up the fact that she was sinning. But he also didn't fail to extend grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth, even on the cross. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he's hanging between two thieves. Now, they weren't just thieves. The Romans didn't just didn't, didn't crucify thieves. They crucified the worst of society. So Jesus is hanging between these two folks who probably were traitors, they were insurrectionists, they may have been murderers, whatever it was, they were, it was, they were two bad dudes. And one of them says to the other, hey, we deserve to die. And Jesus doesn't say a word because they do deserve to die. They're getting the justice that truth demands. They, they broke the law, they committed a crime, and they are being punished for their crime. That's what they deserve, that's the truth. And one of the two turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. You're like, wait, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair at all. I mean, this guy, he, he doesn't even have time to do anything to make up for all the bad things he's done. And then you go back and you consider how Jesus at one point, a rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through all the laws, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm good, I've done all that. So this was a good man. And then Jesus says, I want you to go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he, was, he had great wealth. So you're telling me that the thief on the cross who only lived a bad life gets in and the rich young guy who did everything right, abided by all the laws, is excluded? That seems to be the case. Because Jesus was full of grace and truth. You see, this is messy. And it's why we don't like it. Because when we start trying to be people who are full of grace and truth, when we start trying to be a church that's full of grace and truth, you can't put that in a nice, neat little box and category and put a label on it. And so we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to apply it in our own life. But I can tell you two things that Jesus always did that made him full of grace and truth. One is he always called sin, sin, always. He never hesitated to say that's sin. And the reason he did it was not to manipulate or not to control people, but because he understood sin had consequences. And he loved people enough to tell them the truth and the dangers of what it was that was going on. He understood that truth sets people free. Truth liberates people. But the second thing he did was that he willingly went to the cross and he himself paid the penalty for the sins of everyone in order that people might be set free. He declared that he does not condemn us, but he calls us to leave our lives of sin. See, grace is the only way that we can be reconnected to a holy and righteous God. Truth won't get you there. Truth will make you aware of your need for grace. But truth by itself only leaves you recognizing how far away from God you are. It is grace that connects us back to God. See, my sin is always worse than I think, and God's grace is always better than I imagine. My sin is real. That's the truth. 
My sin affects me. It affects the people around me. It affects the world. That's the truth. But God's grace is always better than I imagine it to be. Sometimes in an effort to defend the truth, which, by the way, I always cringe a little bit. I know what they mean when people say, well, I'm going to defend God's word. I'm going to defend the church. I'm going to defend God. I'm defending the truth. God doesn't need us to defend him. He, He doesn't. But I know what people mean by that, but sometimes in our effort to defend the truth, we're tempted to abandon grace completely. So a woman who can't escape the shame of an abortion only finds condemnation and shame when she comes to church. So what does she do? She doesn't come because those people judge me. A divorced man feels like he can get more support at a local bar than he can in a men's Sunday school class. Because you go there and people seem to be full of truth and very, very lacking of grace. Mark Twain said of those kind of people that they're good in the worst kind of way. (laughs) You ever met somebody like that? They're good in the worst sense of the word. Because they're full of truth, but they have almost no grace. But then sometimes, sometimes we err on this side. In an effort to show grace, we can be tempted to abandon truth. So we don't want to risk offending the divorced people, so we never say that God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce because he hates what it does to you. He hates what it does to kids. He hates what it does to family. He hates what it does to society. But we don't want to say that because we don't want to offend any divorced people. (laughs) Or, or we'll say we don't want to risk hurting those who've suffered the devastating effects of abortion, so we avoid decrying abortion and championing the unborn. Because we, we, we just don't, we don't want to risk hurting anybody's feelings. But Jesus was full of what? Grace and truth. They have to exist in together, and there's a tension that it creates. We shy away from awkward conversations about unhealthy relationships and habits because we don't want to be perceived as judgmental. But listen to this statement. This is what Randy Alcorn said. You may want to write this down and remember this because this, is, this captures the idea of this tension. It's such an important thought. If we minimize grace, the world sees no hope for salvation. If we minimize truth, the world sees no need for salvation. You get that? You got to be full of grace and truth. Not half of each, of both. So if I'm going to be like Jesus, I have to learn to live in the tension that grace and truth creates. I have to be unashamedly truthful with myself, first of all, and with other people. And I have to be radically filled with grace. If the church is to be God's instrument in the world, we must be full of grace and truth. And we won't fit in people's categories. We won't fit people's labels that they want to fit on people. We cannot let go of either grace or truth. We can't let go of either one and be the church that reflects the fullness of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Now, here's here's what I want you to do. Here's my assignment for you this week. I want you to think in your life. It could be a situation, a circumstance. It could be a relationship where grace and truth are out of balance. And my guess is you won't have to think long. That that there's some circumstance in your life right now, it's at the forefront of your mind, it's a problem, it creates anxiety, it's keeping you up at night, it could be a relationship with a coworker or a family member, it could be something in your personal life nobody else even knows about, but there's something in your life where grace and truth are just out of kilter. And you look at the situation 
And if you were honest, if you were to step back from the situation, you were honest, you would say, there's a whole lot of grace and no truth in that circumstance right now. I, I, I don't want to speak what's true because I know, I know the storm that's going to come when truth is added. And right now I'm just trying to keep the peace. That's all I'm trying to do, keep the peace. But what the situation calls for is truth. And some of you have situations in relationships right now where there's a whole lot of truth, but there's no grace. And, and what the situation desperately requires is grace. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to identify in your life, what is that situation? What is that relationship? And then I want you to begin to pray this prayer. God, manifest the fullness of Jesus. Manifest the fullness of Jesus in his grace and truth in me in this situation. Help me to see the grace and the truth and to be comfortable living in the tension that they create. Some of you are here and inside of your own heart, you, you, you're struggling with your image of who God is. Because you have an image maybe from a parent, maybe from a teacher, maybe from a pastor, of, of, a, of a God who's maybe full of truth and judgment and condemnation, and you, you just aren't worthy of him. You can never measure up. And you haven't seen much grace in the people in your life. You haven't seen much grace in the churches that you've been a part of. First of all, I'm sorry. Because if you're, if you're only seeing God in the light of truth and righteousness and justice, you're not seeing the God of the Bible. Because Jesus came full of grace and truth. And our reward, our benefit from that is that his grace and truth overflows in our life as grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And if that's what you're looking for today, I invite you to see God for who he really is, full of grace and full of truth. Will you pray with me? Father, it's very difficult for us, if not impossible, to manifest this idea of being full of grace and truth in our own life. But Lord, I pray that we would not give up the fight for that. That we, we would be comfortable living in the tension between grace and truth. And that Lord, we'd recognize if ever we don't feel the tension, we've probably erred on one side or the other. Help us to be people who are like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help us to be a church that demonstrates the fullness of Jesus in grace and truth. Father, like he was, was uh, just, un, like the crowd was unable to put labels on Jesus. Lord, may they be unable to put labels on us. Like the crowd and the Pharisees and the religious people, the political people couldn't fit Jesus into a category. Lord, may the community not be able to put Southside in a category. Because we stand apart. Because we're like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Father, for those who are here today who immediately knew the situation, immediately knew the relationship where grace and truth are out of balance, I pray that by your spirit you'll speak to them, reveal truth to them, demonstrate grace to them that they can see the situation for what it is and give them the faith to bring balance and tension back into that situation.
Father, I pray this morning that as we come to this time of commitment and offering, that, that you will just lay claim to our hearts, lay claim to who we are, what we do. Father, our possessions, our family members, our friendships, our relationships, Lord, they're all yours. And we recognize, God, that everything that we have comes from you. We pray that you'll use the gifts that we give uh, to, to just further your kingdom of grace and truth around our world. Father, whether that's in the life of one individual that we're able to touch or whether that is in a community and a part of our world where we're able to bring justice and peace. Father, we pray that you'll use these gifts that way. Father, for those who are here today with burdens and prayer requests, Father, who need to make decisions, I pray that as they fill out that communication card, as they place that in the offering plate, you'll receive that as just an expression of their desire to draw near to you, to know you in the fullness of your grace and truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.